Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On the last day of summer, 2006, a Utah college student named Reggie Shaw killed two rocket scientists while texting and driving in Cache Valley. In his new book, A Deadly Wandering, A Tale of Tragedy and Redemption in the Age of Attention, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Matt Richtel follows Shaw through the tragedy, his denial of its cause, the police investigation, the state's groundbreaking prosecution, at the time there was little precedent to guide the court, and ultimately Shaw's improbable admission of guilt and his redemption. In the wake of this experience, Shaw has become a leading advocate against distracted driving, and his story has helped spark a national public relations and legislative effort targeting distracted driving, even as cars are increasingly becoming mobile communication centers and our digital devices enmesh themselves into almost every aspect of our lives. We'll talk about the technology and the science of attention as we go along here. Matt Richtel will make an appearance in Utah on Saturday. It's at 12.30 p.m. at the Salt Lake City Public Library as a part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. And Matt Richtel, a pleasure to welcome you in. Thanks for coming on the program. Well, thank you for having me. We are all too familiar with uh, some of these cases in Utah, of course, and uh, we're based here, uh, Utah Public Radio is, in Cache Valley, where where these events uh, took place. Uh, so a very important t- topic to talk about. Uh, you won the Pulitzer Prize for your reporting on distracted driving. I wonder how, how, you, got, how you got into that. How would you get into the topic? Well, I was based uh, I was based at the time in Silicon Valley uh, for the New York Times, and and I was covering technology, and I was also watching my behavior, and I was watching I was watching the lure of this phone. Um, you know, it would ring, and it would it would distract me and pull me away from what I was doing, or I could even feel that thing we now know you know talk about as the phantom ring. Um, and then I noticed my behavior by behind the wheel. I was talking on this thing, and I started to ask, well, what, what, what's going on here? I mean, uh, you know, I'm piloting a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty big old missile here by, uh, at highway speeds or, you know, on the road. What am I doing, and why is this phone beckoning to me so much? And, and uh, coincidentally, my editors were thinking about the same thing, and we started talking about it. And uh, I, I was interested. I went over to uh, Dr. David Strayer's uh, site uh, this morning, uh, you know, preparing. And, and you know Dr. Strayer, of course, you report on him. Yep. Applied Cognition Lab at uh, University of Utah. And he has on the site a quote from one of your stories. You, you interviewed him. I'll just uh, just quote this. This is <laughs> disturbing as we go along. We'll talk about this disconnect between the growing body of science and it seems like a growing number of us who insist on using our cell phones while we drive. Uh, So from one of your stories in this uh, Driven to Distraction series, New York Times, uh, 1990, David Strayer, a junior scientist at GTE, which later would become part of Verizon, noticed more drivers who seemed to be distracted by their phones, and it scared him. He asked a supervisor if the company should research the risk. Why would we want to know that, Mr. Strayer recalled being told. He said the message was clear. Learning about distraction would not be very helpful to the overall business model. That's scary in and of itself. That was 1990. Of course, he's gone on to dedicate his career to this. Uh, are we moving the needle here? Well, I mean, first, you know, just what was going on in 1990 and how did we get here in the first place? You know, the first the first cell towers in many ways went up on the roadways, and, and you can see why. Uh, there was market demand for the one place you couldn't talk on the phone as it was. Where was the one place you couldn't communicate? It was while you were driving. And these were initially car phones, and they were glorified as such. And as you move into the story of Reggie, um, you know, the, the context for the time was that this was quite 
quite a wonderful, wondrous advance that you could talk in the car. I do want to say something. You know, um, David Strayer, Strayer is based in Utah. Um, your state, Tom, is is and, and Cache Valley in particular is maybe one of the most important places, single places in the entire conversation about texting and driving. Between uh, what happened in that Reggie case and your your um, incredibly um, courageous, zealous um, prosecutors and victims advocate between Reggie and his family and how he redeemed himself eventually and the conversation that took place there between the legislators uh, Stephen Clark in the South and and your Senator Hilliard and David Strayer, you guys helped change a country and move the needle. And this entire book is about the Cache Valley. It was, you know, don't don't sell short what what's been contributed there. It's quite remarkable. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the Reggie Shaw story. It's you know if you if you even if you know it, which, which I do, and you know most of us in Utah know the story. It was pretty pulse pounding to to read the whole thing in your book. Um, so let's start with Reggie Shaw himself. He's he's 19 years old. He's he's uh, you know pretty typical uh, Mormon kid uh, raised in Tree Mountain. Has driven this stretch of highway that we call the Valley View Highway many many times. Um, and he, he's yeah. If I might, may I may yeah, I go set ahead. the context for getting to know Reggie Shaw? Because even yes. if you know his his story, I don't think you know um, what you learn in the first few paragraphs about this book. Um, about how Reggie is a good guy, an all-American kid, very honest, but he's made some mistakes like all of us make. Um, And there's a reason he's on the road that day, which goes really in some ways to the heart of the story and and why he struggles with the truth. May I I tell you a little bit about him? Yes, certainly, certainly. So he's 19 at the time, and he has dreamed his whole life of going on a mission, and he's dedicated himself to it. And he's also developed a a really strong tie to a young woman, um, you know, in high school. He's he's fallen for her, and just prior to his um, to his mission, he um, he he gets together with her. He has relations with her. And he tells his his bishop, his ward bishop, uh, that he that he hasn't done such a thing, and so he goes on his mission under a sort of a cloud of of um, oh of of untruth. And while he's at the mission train missionary training center in Provo, he says, "I can't do this. I've got to come clean." And he tells them the truth. He says, "I've I've had this coupling. I should go home." And the reason he's home back in that September, fateful September day, is because he's been sent home from his mission to do the work, to cleanse himself, to go on another mission. So here we have, from a literary perspective, from a, from a human perspective, a complicated character, one who, um, you know, has, has lied under a tough circumstance, but then has had the courage to tell the truth. And on September 22, 2006, not long after coming home from his first mission, he's driving to work on his painting job uh, from Tremont to Logan. It's 6.30 or so in the morning. It's uh, the last day of summer, as you said, but even so, freezing rain is starting to fall, and there is uh, still darkness. And behind Reggie, in a car, in 
is a farrier, a horseshoe maker, carrying a, a trailer with two tons of horseshoes and horseshoe making equipment. This is a missile at highway speeds. And he's noticing that Reggie is occasionally wandering across the yellow divider. Now, would it be okay if I tell you who is coming the other direction? Yes, certainly. I know some have heard this story, but um, it's, it, it is really worth bearing in mind that what this is ultimately about is the cost and the cost of lives. And two wonderful men are coming the other direction, Jim Fafaro and Keith O'Dell, and they are, as cliche as this sounds, they are rocket scientists. They are at ATK Systems, and they are building the booster for the next space shuttle or working on that and various other very high-end things. They're very bright men. They are beloved by their families. They have children. And just after 6.30, Reggie crosses the yellow divider again and he clips the Saturn carrying the two men. And they cross behind Reggie. They, they basically twirl around out of control going 55 miles an hour and they are broadsided by the farrier and um, and John Kaiserman, and the collision is terribly violent, and essentially the two rocket scientists are killed on impact, and a hundred yards down the road, Reggie, who is unscathed, stops, and he pulls over, and he thinks, well, either I don't remember what happened, or maybe I hydroplaned, and that's how our story begins. And I think the one of the factors here is... Um, that could have been you or me. That could have been anybody behind the the wheel. You know. Well, that, well that's exact. That's exactly the point about what makes Reggie so uh, extraordinary is his ordinariness. I mean, he is an all-American kid. He plays basketball. He's loved by his teachers. In fact, to the point where one of them tells me he's the kind of young man I wouldn't mind my daughter winding up with. Uh, he's a bright kid. He does well in school. Uh, he is not prone somehow to making mistakes or being a bad person. He is all of us. And this could, at least at the time, I don't know about now, whether things have changed enough now, at least at that time, 2006, um, this could easily have, uh, just sort of been written off. What, uh, t- tell us the story of how this came to be. Yeah, it, it, well, I, I think I think by almost any rights, it it would have been written off. But about ten miles away, as the crow flies, uh, the call comes in for a for a, a deceased, you know, a a, a a car crash with with fatalities, and there's a Utah State trooper by the name of Bart Rindelsbacher. And he's a, he's a pretty tough guy. He's just back from Iraq where he was sniffing out roadside bombs. He has a reputation for tenacity, and he winds up, you know, with Reggie and, and Reggie's, uh, you know, wonderful mother, Mary Jane, who's at the, there at the scene um, with him. And he takes Reggie to the, you know, who's come to figure out what's going on and comfort her son, and she believes this to be just an accident. And, you know, her son hasn't done anything wrong. And Trooper Rindelsbacher takes Reggie to the Logan Hospital to get a blood draw, which you do as a matter of course, you know, when you're to find out about drugs or alcohol in the case of fatality. And he sees Reggie reach into his pocket and pull out his phone, and he suspects that there's been a vibration because it, it didn't ring. 
and begin to text with one hand. And this is how the first chapter ends. Trooper Rindelsbacher says to me, I realized in that moment he was a one-hander, and he begins to think something is going on. Hmm. And so he pursues it. There are others as well, right? There's, there's a victim's advocate. Yes. Yeah, so, so he begins to dig in, and at this time there's not real infrastructure. You know, there's no legal precedent. How do you get the cell phone records? He's working with these these prosecutors in the Cache County office, they're giving him the subpoena power to go get the phone records, but it sort of goes on and on, and and uh, it's hard to get them, and a year goes by, and, and Reggie gets a, a lawyer, and he and his family, um, you know, they, they, they don't, Reggie says he hadn't done it, so his family, of course, supports him. And remember the context of this. Reggie is also, he's come home from a mission he's felt, rightly or wrongly, um, I don't think anybody condemned him and his family or his community, but he felt like he let people down. And maybe, just maybe, what's going through his mind a little bit is, I don't want to let people down again. Um, And so he gets a lawyer, he's not talking, Trooper Rindelsbacher's looking into it, and then there is another remarkable character uh, in Cache County. May I tell you about her? Yes, yes, for sure. So there's a victim's advocate um, for the Cache County prosecutor by the name of Terrell Warner, and she grew up uh, she grew up LDS in in Southern California, and she grew up under very tough circumstances. And um, as she shared them with me. Uh, you know, my mouth was often agape. She uh, essentially survived, as she tells the story, uh, at the hands of a of a, uh, a drunken and at times violent uh, father, and um, it it turned her into a very courageous person. She would pour out his alcohol, risking retribution, but also. Um, turned her into a zealous person who wanted to become a victim's advocate. And I'm very much short-circuiting her story, and I hope your listeners will take the time and and honor her and and this story by reading about what she's been through, because it is quite incredible. But she came to the Cache County Prosecutor's Office when she and her family moved to the area, and she got a reputation for being the proverbial dog with a bone. If she got her teeth sunk into something where she felt injustice was at play, she would not let it go. And it turns out that initially she thought this took place in Tremont, which was not in Cache County. But where it happened on that road, is that Valley View Road, if memory serves? Right, State Highway 30, known as Valley View, yeah. Valley View Road. It was on far enough along to be in Cache County, and she started to learn more about it, and she knew Jackie Ferfaro, the widow of one of the men who died, and she started to dig in and learn more, and she, I'm now I'm very much shortening the story, but she said, this will not stand, and essentially took it upon her shoulders to make sure that the prosecutors were aware of what was going on. And as you mentioned, there there's no framework here, right? In in the courts, this is unprecedented to, to try to go and get a conviction on on texting and driving. I had the pleasure to speak with uh, these very um, you know thoughtful prosecutors in Cache County, and they were trying to figure out what to do. In fact, they got a memo from one of the the law students who worked in their office saying, "There's no legal precedent here. We got nothing to go on." Mm. 
Um, and they waited, and there was one prosecutor by the name of Don Linton who um, also courageously tells us in the story about some of the stuff he went through as a child that had him look at right and wrong in a certain way and had him think about what, um, what this meant and the costs and decided to take on the case. And so Reggie, at this point, had gotten to go on his second mission, and he was up in Canada when, and, and thinking maybe this was all behind him, when the call came in and he was called, I believe, into the mission president's office, and he was told, you got to go home, son. You're facing charges for negligent homicide. Mm. And this is the second time he's had to come back from his mission. Second time. Yeah. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. It's his life dream, and he's such a, you know, uh, you know, dedicated to this cause and here and his beliefs and his faith, and now he's got to come home. So in the meantime, what's what what's the? I guess you know you'd be heartbroken, all of the emotions. What's what's the attitude of uh, Jackie Fafaro and uh, Lilo Dell toward uh, toward prosecution? Are they pushing for this or? Yeah, I mean they're I mean, mostly they have sort of in a way they've sort of given up. I mean they, they're they're two women who, again, I want to, you know, just say, I I hope you get a chance to read the book because they open themselves up to the rawness of an experience that really is at the heart of the matter. I mean, they represent the stakes here, they and their lost husbands and their children, um, and they share with us what they've gone through. They handle it in very different ways. Leila is very grief-stricken. Jackie has a capacity to kind of keep her grief um, to 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 in, endure it very privately, and they're trying to figure it out. They've they've sort of given up at this point. Will this really happen? You know what's what's they they don't know what to think because it's dragged on for so long, and then all of a sudden they find themselves confronting this young man in court, and they are if nothing else if nothing else they are so frustrated that he they have not gotten an apology, but. But Reggie's lawyer, who's a a well-known lawyer in the area and and uh, has a good reputation, has told him, I, I caution you not to apologize because it could be seen as guilt. So this is part of the legal strategy. Reggie, even though he he still wants to apologize to the families, even though he doesn't want to admit texting, has been holding this apology deep inside. There's something else. Can I just can I tell you something else about your state that is going on at this very moment? That certainly, certainly. Reggie's trial is that that the legal momentum is building. Certainly. There's another really interesting thing that's happening in the South. There's a so after the charges get filed and and now this looks like this legal proceeding is going to get very drawn out because Reggie and his family have dug their heels in and they believe him to be innocent they feel like this is a witch hunt and they say well even so you couldn't even if there was um oh well listen i left out maybe the most important thing you'll have to forgive me why was he facing negligent homicide charges i feel like i i need to spin back about 15 minutes in this conversation but what rindelsbacher and his and the other investigators found that in fact reggie had been texting 11 times 
six, six received and five sent, or the other way around, 11 texts in the minutes and seconds around the wreck. They weren't sure if it was exactly at the wreck. That's hard to pinpoint. But there they had the, this evidence right in front of them. Rindelsbacher wouldn't let go. Terrell, the, the, the victim's advocate, wouldn't let go. Now you've got Don Litton, the prosecutor, who says we've got this great scientist to help us back it up, David Strayer. Um, but Reggie and his family are saying, well, you can't prove it was right at the time of the wreck. And, uh, you know, how do we know he was even distracted? It was rainy that morning. Meantime, so the charges get filed down in the south, in Provo, Missionary Training Center area, there's a state legislator by the name of Stephen Clark, who would later go on to be a mission president in, I believe, Missouri. And he is driving to a legislative session one day, and he's coming up. Is that the, what's, what, what is the big route? Is it 5 that goes up? Uh, 15, um, I-15. I I-15, excuse yeah. me, mm-hmm. thank you. He's going up I-15, it's bad traffic, he's speeding along, and he tells me this story again, another one of these stories that is so open and, and, and candid. And he's late for legislative session, and he pulls out his phone to text his administrative assistant, I'm going to be late, and he looks up at the last second, and he has to hit the brakes with all his might because he's just about to run into another car, and he says, w- w- what am I doing? He says, and he remembers hearing about the Reggie Shaw case. He says, I, I can't be... I can't afford to be Reggie Shaw. I can't afford for someone else to be Reggie Shaw, and I certainly don't want to be the rocket scientist. And he vows that partly because of Reggie and this case he's heard about, which still hasn't been solved, I'm going to go and I'm going to introduce at my next chance some legislation to make this against the law. So all these forces, Tom, are coming together. Yeah, you're you're reminding me as we go along. Of course, we lived through this, but it's it's good to have this all in a compact narrative. So that enabled uh, the, the prosecution. The sorry, what enabled the comp prosecution? So the legislation. Well, the, the, it was the after the prosecution. The the when Reggie, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but when after Reggie did come clean, he then testified and supported the legislation and some say he gets a lot of credit for it. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, it's it's all kind of kind of jumbled. What one reason is it it seems like so long ago. It, I mean, there there have been some advances. Uh, this is 2006, we're in 2014 and and I think some things have fundamentally changed. Is that your view? Well, that's a great question and it gets into the other half of this story. So one half of this story, if you will, is the story of the families of Reggie, of the prosecution of the legislation of this contribution by Cache County and the state of Utah, which was really on the forefront. But the other half is the science. And that is where um, it explains why, in fact, Tom, things have not changed. Okay. In fact, arguably things are worse, and here's why. Back then, we were only learning to know about the risks, learning, learning about the risks. Now we know 96% of people will say in polls that texting and even phone use in general is dangerous, and yet 30 to 40% of people will still text. And, you have to, and, and that's worse in some ways because there's no way we can say we don't know anymore. That, that, it just there's no way. We, the attitudes have shifted. We know. So now you ask, what is going on? Why is it 
that we are unable to resist the phone when it rings. In the case of Reggie, you know, a, a, a guy with a pretty good sense of right and wrong, why was it that he was unable to resist what was really a completely innocuous text from a young lady he was just becoming friends with or starting to date? It was basically good morning. And now what's re- what the other half of this book gets into is to try to answer the question, why? Why can't we resist? Let's uh, I'll, I'll pause you there. We'll take a brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, wrap up some of the, the, this human drama as we go along and get into this, your answer. And uh, there's, there's much in the book uh, to that. The subtitle is A Tale of Tragedy and Redemption in the Age of Attention. I'll ask you about that phrase, Age of Attention. The title is A Deadly Wandering. And the author is Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Matt Richtel. Uh, he is coming to Utah for an appearance for the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That is on Saturday, 12.30 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. And we'll have more following this brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Extension Utah Prepare Conference Expo. Saturday, September 27th from 8 o'clock a.m. to 8 o'clock p.m., offering over 50 exhibitors and 30 preparedness classes at the South Town Center in Sandy. Details at utahprepare.com. And the Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. We're back with Matt Richtel. He's a New York Times reporter, Pulitzer Prize winner for his reporting on distracted driving, a great series in the New York Times, Driven to Distraction, and his new book uh, centers on this problem, distracted driving and, and our troubles with technology and attention, uh, by focusing on the story of Reggie Shaw and those tragic events in September of 2006. Where Reggie Shaw was uh, texting and driving, swerved uh, over the center line, series of events, uh, kills a couple of rocket scientists, Jim Ferfaro and uh, Keith O'Dell. And uh, we're talking about the human tragedy and uh, it's its tale of redemption as well. Reggie Shaw has become a uh, an advocate, leading advocate uh, for uh, against uh, distracted driving. And there's a lot of science here as well, trying to answer the question that uh, Matt Richtel posed before the break, why, when I think every last one of us knows that we shouldn't be doing these things, why are we still doing it? There's a disconnect there, and we're on tape uh, for the program today. Um, Matt Richtel, our, our guest. So I want to uh, move a little forward in this human drama before we get deep into the science. I want to do that as well. So back to Reggie Shaw, at a certain point, I don't know, he has a change of heart. He's been denying this, uh, and his counsel is telling him don't apologize, even though he wants to, because that would be an admission of guilt. But at some point, he, I guess he recognizes, yes, I was texting texting and driving. I did cause this. I want to come clean. Well, so what happens is uh, these two strands actually come together, the human drama and the science. It's a uh, it's a it's a pretrial hearing. Uh, a couple of years after the event takes place, they're they're nearing uh, the time of uh, of in 2009 that they're near. It's at the end of 2008. This accident, remember, took place in 2006, and they're at a pretrial hearing. And of all people, David Strayer is on the stand doing a pretrial testimony, essentially describing what is going on inside Reggie's brain and what a text does and how it how um, 
markedly it distracts you, that it actually changes your idea of reality because you're so focused on the text, you can't see what's going on around you. And Reggie is listening to this. And as he listens, he says to himself, oh my gosh, I did it. The science coupled with the phone records, coupled with his fear of an oncoming trial, but the science in particular made him understand how he could so have been elsewhere in his brain that he could maybe not have even remembered or have not understood what was happening at the time. It was science in no small part that caused Reggie to say, I did it. And then he took a plea. And the plea involved, and I'm making a, a long story short, but about 30, day, 30 days in jail, of which he served 18, and, and to do some community service. And remember I mentioned Stephen Clark brings this legislation. And he honestly has real doubts, he tells me, that it'll ever get passed. He's a very savvy legislator, but don't forget, Utah is a, you know, it's a, it's a state, uh, as, they, as they say in the vernacular, it's a red state. Uh, it doesn't want, um, you know, legislators don't want government's hands in a lot of people's uh, homes or lives uh, or cars. And so Clark's not thinking people are going to let, te- you know, texting and driving be outlawed. It's someone's personal behavior. They're allowed to do it. And it looks like this legislation is headed for the cutting room floor. And right after Reggie takes a plea, early in 2009, there's a hearing. And it's got to get out of committee, and it's already failed to get out of committee once. And so there's a hearing on the Capitol, and does anybody have anything to say? And Terrell gets up, remember the victim's advocate, and she has something to say, and they say thank you, well articulated, thank you very much, but it doesn't really get people's attention. And in fact, the committee members are texting, some of them during her testimony, she recalls, and they say, anybody else have anything to say? And a voice says from the back, "Uh, may I speak, please? And up stands Reggie Shaw. Now, until this point... Until this point, even though he's admitted it to himself, until this point, even though he's admitted it to himself, he has not, he has not, um, sorry, excuse me for a second. Until this point, he has, someone, someone just walked in the room. Oh, okay. You got that. Right. Until this point, he has not publicly said anything. And he gets up in front of the legislature, this committee, and he says, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, it's incredible if you have a a chance to go back and hear this testimony, and it's all written in the book. He says, basically, you know those two rocket scientists you heard about? I'm the one that killed them. And Terrell says, it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. And the committee passed out that legislation, and the House passed it, and the Senate passed it, and Governor John Huntsman signed what was then the toughest law against texting and driving and only the second in the country. And Strayer later said to me, they ought to call it Reggie's Law. Hmm. And it was only the beginning for Reggie because he went on uh, to become a spokesperson all across the country to the point where Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood, former Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood, calls Reggie a hero who, who lays himself bare. Uh, the, 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 the prosecutor, Linton, says, I've never seen anybody else redeem himself like this. 
I mean, essentially, and Stephen Clark, and I think this means, it means a lot, uh, it should mean a lot to Reggie. Uh, I think it means a lot on its face. Stephen Clark, remember the legislator who became the mission president, said, you know, Reggie didn't get to go on his mission for the LDS, but in my view, he's done a mission as important or more important than he could ever done by becoming a spokesperson against texting and driving. Mm. Yeah, there, there's a redemptive, um, there's a redemptive part to this story. Um, a big redemptive part to this story. This is not an all bad news story, and and maybe through Reggie, you know, he can. I mean, I I I I, I kind of blush when I use such overt um, religious imagery. I don't mean it quite this way, but you know, we can lead ourselves out of the wilderness as well. Um, and maybe he can help us, and maybe he can help us if we start to listen to the science as he did. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Matt Richtel. He is a New York Times reporter, won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on this issue, Distracted Driving. Uh, his book is A Deadly Wandering, A Tale of Tragedy and Redemption in the Age of Attention. And he's coming to Utah for an event with the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. And that is on Saturday, 1230 in the afternoon at the Salt Lake City Public Library. We're on tape in this, uh, in this program uh, today. But you can certainly respond at upraxcess at gmail.com. So let's uh, let's jump into the scientist this the science rather this is fascinating it's ongoing the uh, evidence is piling up I've talked to Dr. Strayer several times on this uh, program uh, and I I think most of us are aware nowadays that uh, talking on your cell phone you've got some uh, some facts here for one example cell phone use impairs drivers to the same level as legal intoxication the level uh, set by most states. Um, and let me just read a couple more of these. Uh, texting while driving makes you 23 times more likely to get to an accident. Um, texting while driving plays a part in 280,000 accidents in the United States each year. And yet, and here's here's the kicker, at any given daylight moment across America, approximately 660,000 drivers are using cell phones or manipulating electronic devices while driving. So I, I think, as, as you said before, there is there's still a disconnect. So... Let's get into why that is, and I, I think the, the, the best image that I've ever been able to come up with to help my, me understand it myself um, and maybe to help articulate it is, um, if you would, just do, do, you know, do play a little, um, uh, do a little imagination with me, and let's picture a cave person, a caveman or cave woman tending to a fire, and the person gets a tap on the shoulder. Uh, from behind. Uh, I would ask you the rhetorical question, do you think you could resist turning around? Uh, probably could. And the answer is, of course, no, because, uh, you know, you don't know what it's going to be. Is that an opportunity or wor- is that a threat? Is there, is there a guy with a spear? So first thing to think about, when you're on the phone, when you, sorry, when you're in the car and the phone rings or it buzzes, it is like a proverbial tap on the shoulder, but from anyone anywhere in the world. Is it opportunity? Is it threat? Is it your boss? Is it your boyfriend? Is it your girlfriend? Is it your... Go down the list, right? How easy do you think it is to resist a tap on the shoulder from someone unknown? So that's, that's part one. 
would it be okay, Tom, if I took you a little bit inside your brain to tell you what's happening at that moment? I would love it. Okay. So in either situation, whether you've got someone, the, the cave person at the fire or the driver, but let's just do the cave person for a second. When you're building a fire, it is taking the, mo- the most human parts of our brain, the most advanced part, called the frontal, co- the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex. It is well-named. It's right in front of your head. You can touch your forehead. It's right behind there. It's more evolved than in any, any animal species, and it gives us the power to direct our attention. It's like an airplane control tower. It is very powerful, and the scientists will tell you it's the thing that lets us build art and art architecture and civilization it is our it is the thing that makes us human in our brain but when you get a tap on the shoulder or picture another image you hear from behind the roar of a lion you get a signal sent from the back of your brain you can touch your neck and feel it's right around here it's the reptilian parts of the brain sends a signal up to the front part of the brain that basically says lion run and it overtakes that long-term intentional focus that was involved in building a fire and for good reason because if you don't run you get eaten or if you don't respond to the tap you don't know what's behind there so those are your base survival mechanisms overtaking this sort of intentional focus same thing on the road if you are focused on the road that's using these very human things but now boom here comes the ping from down below it begins to hijack or short circuit so part of the reason we have a disconnect but this is just one part is that we have trouble resisting this survival this 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 survival impulse could i add a a little bit of a startling fact to that yes okay so you would think to yourself i think to myself well most of the stuff i get is spam it's irrelevant you know i think 67 percent of what we email we get is spam or something and most of these texts we know are not all that important it's just every once in a while is is you know a good one comes through. So you would think if most of the stuff is not that important, we would learn to ignore it. It turns out rather than making our devices less um, kind of habit forming, it makes them more magnetic, more seductive. And the reason for that goes back to stuff called um, a kind of a a term in psychology called intermittent reinforcement. It goes back to a guy, B.F. Skinner. And to illustrate this, would you mind if I mentioned uh, uh, an experiment involving rats? That's always always welcome, yes. Always a a rodent (laughs) reference is critical for any any interview. Um, There you've got this rat... Uh, this is the original kind of intermittent reinforcement experiment. You've got a rat in a cage, and the rat is supposed to pull on the lever to get food, but the, it's not clear to the rat when food comes down. It comes down randomly. So the rat has to push the lever all the time and gets conditioned to push all the time, trying to figure out when the, to make the food come down. 
Well, if you'll forgive the comparison of us to rodents, the unpleasant comparison, with our devices, we never know when the good stuff's going to come because a lot of it's bad. We want that food. We want the good burst. It's like a slot machine. It's hard not to keep pushing it because you never know when it's going to be good. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. Um, there's another fact that goes along with this. We can't pay attention to two things at once. You, you talk about the cocktail party effect. Yeah, which, um, let me, this is a fun one to do. Maybe your listeners can try it themselves. This book traces sort of the birth of neuroscience as it leads all the way, you know, from Europe uh, in the 1850s through the end of World War II and all the way to, you know, Cache County. And right about after World War II, these scientists came up with a principle called the cocktail party effect to understand, to just demonstrate how limited our attention can be and how powerful it can be. And here's the test. You can do it yourself. Do it at dinner with your family. Do it, uh, do it at a cocktail party, as they say. Do it wherever. The cocktail party effect works like this. I'm, I'm talking to the person in front of me. And then I try to simultaneously listen to the conversation behind me or next to me. If you do this test, you will discover almost instantly that it is impossible. Essentially, what you can do is switch from one conversation to the next. So, you know, I'm talking to you, Tom, in front of me, but I hear Jane next to me. I can switch over and listen to Jane, but I've lost you then. Or I can focus on you, but then I've lost her. And what this began to demonstrate is early, this is how long we've known this, is that you really have a powerful ability to focus, because I can focus on you, but it is also very limited. And there's a good survival reason for that, what, what we talked about either earlier. To do complicated things, like build a fire, or do a work project, or your homework, or drive a car, you need to really be able to focus, but it also has to be flexible enough to switch for the very reasons we described earlier. Mm. Uh, so I wonder if we could um, bring this uh, back to the, you know, the use of technology, specifically phones in, in the car. I've talked to Dr. Strayer about this. So he says hands-free is just about as bad as holding the phone. Texting, of course, very bad. Um, it, it, and I'd like to get into talking a little bit about where the car is going, if I, you know, somewhat of a pun, but but the, it seems like the automobile industry really wants to get into this idea of the car as a mobile communication center. And of course, it's not just them, they're responding to demand from from us, and that seems like entirely the wrong way to go. Yeah, I mean, th- th- you, you raise, a, in your question, you raise a, a, a good, implicit in that question is a good one. What's driving it, the, the demand? Is it the, is it consumers driving the demand, or is it companies glorifying this stuff, which in, ter- in turn stokes demand? That I think it's probably a little bit of both. Right now, as I kind of enumerate in the book, you'll, there are a lot of examples where new car companies are coming out with things like allowing you to get Facebook updates on a screen. Um, you know, Dr. Strayer and most neuroscientists, I should say, who study this, um, say this is... Um, you know, just going precisely in the wrong direction. Uh, as it is, we've got an epidemic on the roadways of 
you know, 33,000 to 40,000 people dying every year. The last thing we need is one other thing to concentrate on, and that's where the car makers appear to be headed. What the car makers will say is, well, we're doing this anyway. Let's find the least harmful way to do it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I guess uh, as a New York Times journalist, I don't want to be too prescriptive um, or, you know, take, take sides in that conversation. But I can just tell you what each side says. The, the, the auto industry says, well, we're doing it anyway. Let's, let's try to do it with voice commands. The neuroscientists, many of them, but not all of them, um, would say, this stuff is not getting us away from distraction. Your mind is still off the road, and even your visual cortex, the part of your brain involved in seeing things, gets engaged with these devices, and then you have what Dr. Strayer calls inattention blindness, and you are no longer focused on piloting your two-ton missile. Yeah, I'm thinking at this point about uh, the, I'm sure you're familiar with this, and I think this is more over on the drunk driving side, the gorilla on the side of the road. You yes. Know, Dr. Strayard, and and <laughs> a certain level of impairment, uh, they, you know, when asked after the simulation, they said, what gorilla? Yeah, yeah. That'll... if you're if you're uh, if your listeners haven't gone and looked up the uh, those tests, you can I think you can do some of those simulations online. They're they're pretty scary. Where you get so you so distracted, focused on one thing, you miss the guy in the gorilla suit. Yeah, uh, so I wonder. Um, a lot of times we we make parallels between distracted driving and drunk driving, and we say that we have made progress in drunk driving by by a two pronged effort. Uh, a concerted effort on part of society to place a stigma on drunk driving and at the same time tougher laws, tougher enforcement. Is that yep. the blueprint for distracted driving? That is that has been the blueprint for a lot of issues, including, you know, seatbelts and certainly drunk driving and and Matt and, and Candace Leitner and and uh, you know, many states have taken great strides in 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 that area, although we are seeing some sort of peeking out in drunk driving fatalities, which is not making people too happy. But it, but it is the blueprint. And in this case, so far, the blueprint is not really working or maybe, maybe working around the margins when we really work hard on enforcement. There are a couple problems going on right now that the public safety community, policymakers, legislators um, are trying to figure out. Here's one problem. For the, for the police, it's awfully hard to tell when someone's texting or dialing or using, uh, you know, a music service or a map. The phone has become a full-fledged computer right now. So the police are having some trouble making determinations, even though they're writing a lot of tickets. For the driver, it, it doesn't exactly let them off the hook, but the psychologist will tell me that the laws are also confusing for them. You know, it's like, well, I'm kind of allowed to do some things. I'm allowed to dial, right? So could I just send one text? What's exactly the difference? It's really getting very murky uh, in, the, in, in the minds of drivers and then for the, from on the enforcement side. The other thing is, you were talking about tough laws. Let's just stick with public education for a second. You mentioned that, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and, the, and all that stuff did a great job. You know, Reggie has become part of a campaign that is led by a whole bunch of uh, amazing people around the country who have been victim, whose families have been victims, who are speaking out against distracted driving. That's getting there. But 
um, I, I don't think right now attitudes are the problem. We keep going back to the disconnect, Tom. There's not a problem of knowing it's dangerous. There's a problem of behaving differently. And this is where the question about the law comes in. So I mentioned one issue with the law is sort of the murkiness. Another issue with the law, and this is going to be really an interesting conversation going forward, and, and again, as a journalist, I don't want to be too prescriptive, and I frankly don't even know the answer. But the question is, how much tougher do the laws need to get to start curbing behavior? In the case of drunk driving, they had to get awfully tough, meaning you were going to lose your license or your dri- and or your driving privileges um, for a short time, a long time, and maybe you were going to go to jail for a short time, maybe a long time, depending on the damage. Right now, the costs for getting in a uh, you know, a texting accident or a phone accident are mo- certainly modest by comparison. I just heard that maybe Ontario in Canada might have proposed raising it to $1,000. That starts to really get you thinking. But I think in the case of drunk driving, uh, the terror people feel about drinking and driving is both the fear of hurting someone or themselves, but also the sheer deserved humiliation of being caught and the financial and even penalties to your freedom that you face. And right now the laws aren't there. Should they be? I don't know, but I think conversations are starting along those lines. In the meantime, I'm, I'm looking at some headlines here from the, the Deseret News. There's another uh, very heavily publicized case out in Vernal in eastern Utah. Um, a, a man was driving along a, a road and, uh, and hit a teenager. And, and he, uh, I think, admitted that he was texting and, and driving. He, he's going to get uh, prison time. Um, yeah. uh, that was not, in fact, I think he's probably, probably serving right now. Uh, at the same time, the, you know, these cases still go on and on. So as, as you say, uh, this will be an ongoing story. I wonder at the end of the conversation here, just have a couple of minutes, uh, we come back to, to some of the people in, the, in this tragic event. Uh, Reggie Shaw, uh, you know, setting off a series of events which uh, killed Jim Fafaro and, and uh, Keith O'Dell. So Reggie Shaw, there, there's a very moving uh, passage in the book where you know, Mr. Shaw is, is he's he's undergone a, a lot and it's uh, gone you know through depression and, and such. He talks to high schools. He's out there. There's kind of a, a private moment you put in the book. He's he's out with a new girlfriend and and he yeah. gets up the courage to take her out to the accident site. I, I don't know if this yes. is the first time he'd he'd been out there and and visited the site. What do you talk about that? Uh, I I it, he might have driven through there once, if my memory serves. It was the first time he stopped, yes. And he was, this is a young lady, he's sort of getting some stability back in his life that he felt he had enough invested in, he could take her there. It's really, I guess in some ways, a beautiful moment because maybe just little by little he's starting to heal and that represents that. Mm. And in the meantime, uh, the Fafaro family and Odell family... Um, yeah. What what's become of them? Of course, you know part part of this. I imagine they just want to get on with their lives, have some privacy. But uh, we, you know, we wonder about them. We our hearts go out. Well, to them. I think I think they're doing. I think they're doing much much better. I mean, uh, Jackie has um, raised a couple wonderful girls, and I I talk to her periodically, and she sounds to me like she's doing very well. Um, Leila, I've, I haven't, I've been exchanging, um, if you're out there, Leila, we've been exchanging phone messages, but I've heard through the grapevine that, uh, things are, are really, um, 
you know, she's feeling better on a lot of fronts, and I certainly hope so. She's she's a wonderful woman, and I just spoke to her daughter Megan, who's now in Germany and sounding uh, better too. I mean, I, I I actually think it's a good place to end this if we're close. Um, I mean, happy to go on if you want, but I I think we should, you know, th- they are the they are what this conversation is about. Um, you know, this this I I, th- I think the book offers us some roads forward and some understanding of how we got here, but it is on some level built on grief. And I am all these people, and I would include in this, you know, Mary Jane and Ed Shaw, who shared of themselves and loved their son and were trying to do what was right. There, There's no, to, to me, there's not exactly villains in this story. There are humans really working through it. And I think that's why, I hope that's why this story will resonate with people because we are all human dealing with maybe something supernatural in our technology, something so powerful that is a, it is eclipsing us and challenging us. And I think we have to band together and understand what that is. Um, and so I would just finally express enormous gratitude to all the folks in Utah, and there were many who contributed and shared and laid themselves bare. Um, they made, uh, to the extent that this, you know, I, I, I guess on this Sunday the New York Times has a review, and they say that this this book belongs uh, for in high school curriculum with Fast Food Nation and To Kill a Mockingbird as a social parable. And to the extent that people get something out of this book that powerful, it owes to the folks of Cache County, it owes to the legislature, it owes to the state for coming together, and, I, and I'm very grateful for them sharing their story. We will end it there. Matt Richtel is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter. Uh, his book is A Deadly Wandering, A Tale of Tragedy and Redemption in the Age of Attention. He'll be in Utah on Saturday at 12.30 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library, an appearance as part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. Mr. Richtel, a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.